Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is something that I think a lot of creators struggle with. It's like you make this great work, and then you think the world is like eagerly anticipating it, but they're not. So people say, well, where should you focus? I think at some point you have to figure out what your umbrella is. Most people can't answer the question, who is this actually for? Who is your fan? People go, leadership books are popular. I should write a leadership book. Well, that's a good way to get 1% of market. What you want is 100% of a market. So you have to think, what is the book that only I can write? If we're thinking about books or a movie or a restaurant, I'd be going, what is everyone else doing? And I want to do not that. That's probably the easiest place to start from. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully... With our old friend and sponsor, ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners, you guys, can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time to try for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Today's episode is brought to you by Thumbtack. Thumbtack makes it easy to find and hire skilled professionals for anything on your list, from home improvement projects to event planning to personal wellness, Thumbtack connects you with professionals offering more than 1,100 different services nationwide. Boy, I want a massage, a haircut, home improvement. I'm going to use Thumbtack. 
Simply tell Thumbtack a little bit about your project. Then, within 24 hours, you'll have up to five estimates from local pros that match your criteria. Thumbtack makes it easy to find pros for pretty much anything you need done. Download the app or try it now at Thumbtack.com. That's Thumbtack.com. So Ryan Holiday, once again on the podcast. I know. You're going to have to tell me if I'm repeating myself at all because I don't even remember what I've said all the other times. I won't remember either. Okay. Oh, wait, but, but how many times now have you been on the podcast? Four or five. Yeah, four or five. Yeah. That's what I said to someone earlier. I think you've now eclipsed both Brian Koppelman and Tucker Max as most on the podcast. That's pretty good company, so <laughs> yes. I'll take it. And we're talking about... This great book that you have coming out, uh, Perennial Seller. I know this is not the final copy. This is the uncorrected proof, Perennial Seller. Uh, the Art of Making, and I always forget subtitles. Did you come up with a subtitle? The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. And I think why I really like this book, you call it Perennial Seller, and, and you're obviously interested in books, and a lot of this is about how books become classics as opposed to just sort of forgotten or commercial successes that don't somehow become classics. But really this applies to everything. It applies to business, it applies to ideas, it applies to any kind of creativity, art, restaurants, movies, mm -hmm. anything. What what else would you say it applies to, the, the ideas in this? Like, like yeah. everybody who communicates should basically study the principles in this book. I mean, we're in a recording studio, that's a drum set. I'm sure they have Zildjian symbols here. They've been in business for four centuries. Uh, which is insanity. Wait, like, who's been in business? For Zildjian symbols. How do you like, spell that? Z i l d j i n. Four I centuries they've been making drum symbols. Yeah, since like 1623 is when they started. Fisker's scissors. You know that they've been uh, a business for five centuries. Four or five centuries. Um, Sierra Tradone, which is a candle shop, they opened their first store in Manhattan in 2015, but they started making candles for Napoleon. So, like, there's all sorts of businesses that, like, Katz's Delicatessen, 1888. You know, there, there's businesses that last. Not everything has to be trendy and then disappear. Things can last for generations. And, and I feel like we live in a world, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've, you've said this in the book, we sort of live in this kind of what's trending in Twitter right now uh, yeah. world, and we have to address this right now, and that's what's important. But really... What, all these things that you describe, plus the books you describe in the book, plus the uh, musicians you describe in the book, plus the movies you describe in the book, all of these things seem to have some essence to them that hit something primal in us. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what makes something perennial is is the something primal that, that tends to last, that we remember from the age of 15 to 80, and then the next generation remembers it as well. Yeah, so you take something like the publishing industry, which is a $70 billion a year industry, book publishing. And the vast majority of that revenue comes from things that are old. Right, like like most uh publishers survive on their backlist, mm -hmm. right? Like like take uh I mean, you mentioned in the book Catcher in the Rye still sells is it published in 1951 or 52, mm -hmm. sells a million copies a year. Right. Like how many books published this year will sell a million copies a year? Not even how many uh copy how many copies how many books published this year will sell a million copies. How many copy? How many books published this year will sell a million copies ever? Right. Mm -hmm. So, things, 
even though the vast majority of the income of the publishing industry is from the backlist, and in, in the music industry in 2015, the first year that uh, catalog albums outsold new releases in that year, um, which is now going to be a trend going forward, um, the vast majority of energy of those industries are spent on, it's like the 80-20 principle reversed. They spend 80% of their energy on things that are responsible for 20% of their revenue. And then the thing that's responsible for 80% of the revenue, the old stuff, they just take for granted. They just assume that it happens or they leave it alone. It reminds me, actually, I was having uh, dinner with a guy who, uh, KKR, a big private mm-hmm. equity firm, gave him you know hundreds of millions of dollars to buy the right, he was, he had been a DJ. They gave him all this money to buy the rights to classic songs. Mm-hmm. And now he's got this like massively performing fund that just brings in money every year. So he's doing what you're saying. It's, it's almost like he has a music company that only has the backlist. Well, totally. And and they actually, in the, the early 2000s, when David Bowie was still alive, they came up with something called the Bowie Bond, yeah. which is like his catalog makes X amount per year. So why is he waiting for that? Why can't he raise a bond on those future future earnings. And a bunch of bands did this. Iron Maiden did this, David Bowie, a couple other big groups. They were like, look, this is a dependable asset like gold or real estate. Um, why can't I why can't I borrow against the future earnings of my royalties? And you know, Michael Jackson's estate has made something like a billion dollars since his death. Not from just from Michael Jackson's songs, but the fact that he Assembled a huge catalog, like the of, Beatles. That he bought the Be- and he bought the Beatles catalog not because he stole it from the Beatles, but he thought it was worth more than Paul McCartney did. And so that that's where the income is ultimately is in, in is in dependable perennial intellectual property. So so separating it out from well, actually, let, let's give a couple specific okay. examples first, and then I want to figure out what is that essence that makes sure. something perennial. So you have such great examples. Um, which and some of it I don't quite understand. Okay. I, actually, maybe I'll hit the one that I don't understand the most. So, Avatar, you point out, is the most commercially successful movie ever. Yeah, and yet we can't remember a single line from it, as opposed to like let's say The Godfather, which sure. I'll probably I probably watch The Godfather every single year. Sure, you know I probably watched it twenty or three or Star Wars. I probably watch every single year. Right, or Schindler's List or something like that. But Avatar, I've seen once and I will never see it again. Sure. So Avatar is definitely like I'm not saying that Avatar wasn't successful. Clearly, it's the most successful movie of all time in its theatrical run. But by nature of by nature of the fact that it, its primary appeal was its technological advancements, uh, not its timeless story and not its r- resonance. It, it, if you look at its revenue, it probably goes like this and then down, unless you know there's a sequel. Maybe it'll become more. He's obviously thinking about doing more, but it's a fundamentally different story than, say, the Shawshank Redemption, which starts off slow, or Star Wars, which is beaten by Smokey and the Bandit at the box office. I didn't know that also. That was in your book, too. Yeah. and So, and so that I, weekend, you mean, it was beaten? Yes, that- yes. But by the way, I owe you, because I found out that fact from Cass Sunstein's book, which you recommended that oh, yeah. I read. It's, it's called The World of Star- exactly. Star Wars. And, and so it's like, not only did it get beaten uh, its opening weekend, but it's and and then went on to make a lot of money. But the revenue of Star Wars is actually accelerating. Like today, it's probably worth more than it was five years ago because it's 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 adding fans. It's accumulating all these different income streams. So the it's not that things can't be successful right now, and that everything that's successful right now is a fad. But 
my point is that there's this sort of other, there's this elephant in the room of all the creative industries that really the money is in the things that stand the test of time that last. They're cheaper to make, they're less risky to make, they're less sexy, but they're also the most dependable. Like so, so, so wait. Let I, I again. I want to understand. Yeah. Uh, Avatar versus Star Wars. Sure. Because if I tell you something, a movie that was on the cutting edge of special effects, a reluctant hero, uh, yeah. a semi love story, uh, a guy who encounters all sorts of problems with aliens, and you know right. saves the world as a result. That kind of describes both movies. It does. It's a timeless story. It does, but I'm not sure. Avatar isn't explicitly based on the hero's journey, and it's also not designed to create a community, right? I think what Star Wars did, and this is, I think this is much later in the perennial process, but I do think it's important, is like, can you build a community of hardcore fans around that work? It's like everyone saw Avatar when it came out, so... It, it didn't really do anything for a specific group of people, right? So like I saw Iron Maiden play in San Antonio two days ago, and that's my third time seeing them. They've been a band for 40 years. They haven't been on the radio in 30 years, and there was 20,000 people in this arena, and it was just us. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not for everyone. It's just for us. So what is... Uh, well, okay, before I ask again, yeah. what is the essence of an Iron Maiden or sure. a Star Wars versus these other things? Another great example, so we've, we've mentioned, we've talked about books, uh, movies, uh, you've mentioned some some businesses, uh, you just mentioned music, but like TV shows, you have a great example, two shows that were around the same time, both commercially successful, Seinfeld versus Friends, uh, Seinfeld has literally coined like new phrases in the language. Yeah. You know, people say yada yada yada, or they say oh, yeah. there's so many phrases that sure. they say. And friends, it's like you say, we kind of forget now what it was all about. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Well, I think it, to a certain degree, there is a certain secret or magic to great stuff. So I grant that. But I, I would say that I think one of the differences is that one was trying to be the popular show right then, and I think the other was looking at things on a larger horizon. Seinfeld is written with a stand-up comic's eye for sort of timeless, funny, uh, perennial problems of life, right? The low talker, the high talker, the, the you know, who do you tip, how do you tip, you know, all, all these- What are the rules of society? Exactly, and Friends is about- ephemera, right? Like Friends is about, it's the episode of Friends where they're going to a Hootie and the Blowfish concert and the episode of Friends where, you know, this happens or that. It's the, Friends is about, you know, uh, Ross's relationship with Rachel and Chandler's relationship with Monica. I would say Seinfeld, again, we're just looking at this from the outside. Seinfeld is about the character's relation to the world around them, the same world that we all operate in. Like, but can we say this in, as you kind of just alluded to, can we say this in, are we saying this in retrospect? Like obviously relationships are important and relatable to mm -hmm. everybody and continue to be. And, you know, Seinfeld and Elaine and George and Kramer had a very New York view sure. of the world that isn't always relatable. And yet mainstream America and the entire world somehow related to it. But I, th I think it's rooted in, in, Jerry Seinfeld's comedic Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David's comedic understanding of the absurdity of life. Like the absurdity of friends is 
how do all these people without jobs live in this ridiculous apartment and do these things? Right. So it wasn't real in that it, sense. It, it's not real. It's not believable, and it doesn't. It it only exists. It only makes sense inside the preposterous universe of network television, right? And there's absurd elements of Seinfeld. So I'm not saying like Kramer's a very unreal person, but Kramer is also based on Larry David's actual roommate or right. her actual neighbor. And so it's it's uh, and, and actually a lot of the great plots on Seinfeld are based on things that actually happened to Jerry and and Larry. Well, but, well, you know, not only that when. Larry started to run out of stories. What he would do is every year he would fire all the writers, bring a new set of writers in from New York, and get their stories. Sure. He'd interview based on how funny their New York stories were. Interesting. And then he'd, as opposed to having a writer's room, he'd send everybody off sure. to write their stories. And then he and Jerry would rewrite all the scripts to be Seinfeldian. Yes. And then the next year he'd just have a new slew of writers in. So I, I think that makes complete sense. And and I think when you're looking at Seinfeld, it's it. They were resisting all of the things that uh, that Friends gave into. There's the Brad Pitt cameo on Friends. There's no celebrity cameos on Seinfeld for the most part, right? right. It's there's not, a New York Mets player. I forget his name. Right, but even that was like sort yeah. of. So it, it wasn't like, oh, there's a Mets play. You know, yeah. it's not. They're not doing the things for sweeps week, right? They're they're resisting the temptation. And I, you see this as an author too when you when you work with a the publisher. They're trying to root you in what's going on right now. They're like, "Well, talk about this, you know? What about this, you know? Like, if you wrote a book right now about any form of communication or politics or culture, your publisher would try to get you to talk about Trump. He's the elephant in the room. Right. But in four years, is he still the elephant in the room? And in eight years, is he the element in the room? You know? So I think Seinfeld." by nature of Jerry and Larry's sort of creative vision for the show and their control over it and the fact that it was sort of uh, underwhelming at first, so it was sort of forgotten, allowed them to put in place some cultural practices that let them be resistant of the crap that is on that ruins so many network shows. Or, or ruins everything, right? Sure, so, right. So, so like what are some of those... What are those some of those barriers that you could put up around your work to, to avoid... Because you yes. still... Because obviously... This is not saying you want to be like. I feel like there's this sort of uh, snobbishness or elitism that people say, "Oh, this is for me," or yeah. you know, about this is my art. But really, Seinfeld was you know hundreds of millions of people enjoyed yes. it. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not that putting these barriers up prevent people from enjoying your work. It's almost the opposite. You have to protect the purity of what you're doing to a certain degree. I think it's very it it is important. You have to. You have to believe that this is something more than just like a commercial product or more than just this thing that you're doing. Um, and so I, I think Seinfeld managed it. And just the fact that Seinfeld quit when he felt like it wasn't going to be good anymore or that it was too much is, I think, uh, an indication of the kind of principles that under girded the show throughout its seven or eight seasons. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Friends didn't leave the air because the people thought it was getting redundant or unnecessary, right? They they were like, how long can we keep this show on the air? But Seinfeld was different. Yeah, somehow there's, there is something more uh, precious about it in the sense that, you know, Seinfeld even says, there was an interview between Howard Stern and Jerry Seinfeld where Howard Stern said, everybody wanted you to continue. Yeah. Like everybody in America wanted you to continue. Right. And Jerry Seinfeld said, 
that's why they're not writing exactly. the top show in the yes. world. Right, so, right. So you have to you have to know you have to you have to go into these things knowing what you're trying to do so you can know what not to do. Because there's like I think people think that it's it's hard to do these things and it is, but it also there's all the it's like you almost have too many ideas. There's all these things that you can do. You can throw in a show or in a book or in a project because people are going to be giving you suggestions. You have to know which which are too far. Do you know what I mean? I think when Brian Koppelman was on your podcast, it might have been this your podcast or another one, but he was talking about like they would they would when they went out with rounders, people were like, there's too much dialogue in right. this. And he's like, that's the whole fucking point. You know what I mean? So you have to know well, what he, that is. He he said something that's very interesting that you that you um inadvertently also uh repeated in this book, which is you've got a You've got to write what interests you, yes, and which is very different from the usual advice, which is write what you know. Yeah, if you if you don't write what interests you, it's just going to fall flat. You're not going to yeah. be able to pick up on all the subtleties and nuances that are important. I think a part of what makes something perennial is that you understand all the nuances of what you're doing better than anyone else does. Right. So everybody's able to somehow key into something, but they don't even know what it is they're keying into. Yeah. Like take take Iron Maiden as an example. Uh, what is the essence of what makes Iron Maiden perennial as opposed to many other metal bands that were out around the same time? I mean, they were kind of like the originators of metal almost, but there were still other hard rock uh, bands that started at exactly the same time. I, th- I think I think what one of the things that Iron Iron Maiden was lucky in that they never got popular, like they never were on the radio. But, but they sold eighty million copies of their albums. Yes, but not in. They didn't sell eighty million albums in nineteen eighty, and now they sell a couple thousand a year. It's like they sell a million albums a year. Do you know what, today? So I think they, in some ways, they got lucky that you know, like when hair metal was popular. Uh, Iron Maiden was a big band, but they weren't part of that crowd. And then when grunge happened, they weren't part of that crowd. And when indie rock, you know, they were they were always on the outside, so they were just doing their own thing. They were but, like, but compare them again though to like Guns and Roses, which still, but which Guns is and Roses almost is a radio band. Guns and Roses is a radio band. Like mm. Guns and Roses had many number one hits. Iron Maiden has basically only had number one albums mm. because their fans bought them. Like. Iron Maiden has three guitarists. That's absurd. You don't need three guitarists, but that's what they wanted to do. You know, Iron Maiden writes eight-minute songs about Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. These are these are things that you don't do if you're trying to be on MTV or be on the radio. But if that's what your fans like, that's what you do. So, so I think they made this self-contained universe um, that was logically consistent and amazing if you're into it. And they... You know, uh, Rick Rubin has this quote. Uh, he says, "You know, the best art divides the audience. Half the people think Iron Maiden is a joke, and the other half think it's awesome." You know, it, it's so funny. Um, somebody once told me, um, actually, Naval Ravikan, who's been a guest on the podcast, he once told me that the best-selling books tend to be the ones with an equal number of five stars and one stars, because <laughs> because they're so controversial. And I don't know if it's true or not, but it makes sense. My first book, I remember the head of PR or social media at Ford posted a picture on Twitter of it in his trash can. Like huh. he was like, this book is a piece of shit. I hate this person. You know, he, he hated it. Huh. And when I saw that, I was like, that's exactly the person that I want to piss off because huh. I'm saying 
that his sort of utopian social media is changing the world for the better vision is totally wrong. So okay, so let's let so let's dive deeper into this that that Iron Maiden or you with your first book, you have uh, or or Seinfeld with 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 uh their show, they had a certain set of principles, mm-hmm. right? So Seinfeld the principles were uh, the show's about nothing. Yes. We're going to observe all these weird rules in society and critical, nobody learns anything at the end. Yes. Which was very different from a lot of sitcoms. Right, right. Like, you know, every every other sitcom would have like, you know, something funny and something bad would happen and yes. the family would all learn to be closer together by right. the end. Seinfeld, nobody learns anything. Sure. And they stuck to that. And Iron Maiden, they stuck to their three guitars. We're going to do the music we want to do and mm-hmm. say things we want to say. Now, many people have beliefs sure. and belief systems and it doesn't always work out that they sure. sell 80 million copies right. of whatever. So what's what what's the next thing that separates out a perennial from the has-beens? Cuz I would say sure. 90% are still that 99% course, are still the has-beens. Uh, so if we put marketing aside cuz I think marketing is an essential part of this, but if we're just talking about the creative process first, I think a lot of people go into making things and they don't think about whether there's actually an audience for this or not, right? So like like when you know the entrepreneur thing is you scratch your own itch that's like not that great of an advice cuz you're the only like you don't want to make something for one person like I, so i think most most people go into something and they don't think they can't answer the question who is this actually for right like who is your fan and are there a lot of you know are there a lot of them are there 10 of them are there 10 of them but there's a new one born every year you know what what is the what is the audience for th- this thing i think that's a very essential element the other element i think uh, and you had peter Thiel on the podcast it's this idea of avoiding competition right so people go lots of people are writing leadership books leadership books are popular i should write a leadership book well that's a good way to get 1% of a market do you know what i mean what you want is 100% of a market and you, so you have to think, what is it? What is the book that only I can write? If we're thinking about books or a movie or a restaurant, like don't open another coffee shop. Open something that only you can open. Right. So, so let's take taking Seinfeld again. People who have all the skills in, let's say, observational comedy yeah. and humor and and writing. Like it turned out, Larry David had this unusually clever skill at, at sitcom writing, mm-hmm. and uh, combined with the fact that they took. The entire genre, and it's not like they changed the genre. You even point this out. It's not like they they they're still a twenty two minute show. Right. They fit uh, many still of no the tropes of a of a, of a sitcom, yeah. but they they moved it forward somehow. They did something that no one else had done. For instance, right. they uh, have multiple. They have storylines for every single character, which they tie together at the end. No yeah. sitcom had done that before. They they don't learn anything. No yeah. sitcom had really done that before. Or even saying this is a show about nothing. Every show was about something before, right? right? This is about family. This is about uh, you know working in the you know whatever. The, it's the idea of like oh we're gonna have a show about. It's like and actually that's the famous that's the famous impetus of Seinfeld is Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld are in like a bodega in New York City and they're making fun of stuff and, and having fun. And then Larry says, this is what the show should be. And he says, what? And he's like, you know, this, just making fun of stuff, right? That That is a new, that is a stroke of innovation. That's a That's the creation of a blue ocean in comedy, in and comedy they, sitcoms. And they had evidence 
too. It wasn't like two random guys making fun of lettuce yes. who said we should make a show about this. I mean, they had been on, you know, between the Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live, yes. and oh, they had already tested out. He's the fact in front that of an audience every night. He yeah. knows people like him making fun of stuff. Right, and he knows that he's that his observations are good enough for a national audience. Yes. So, so there's a way to test it. Like, how did how did Iron Maiden, let's say, and, and again, I always wonder about this thing. It's not. Let's say you're going to start a band. It's not good enough, or let's say you're going to write a leadership book. Yeah. It's not good enough to be twenty or thirty percent better than everyone else, right? Because the average reader doesn't know the difference between 30% better and the average leadership book or the average sitcom or the average totally. band. They might know the difference if you're 10 times better or if you're somehow creating your own, a new genre or sure. whatever, but they're not going to notice 30% better, even 50% better. So how does a, a, an Iron Maiden, which didn't necessarily have an opportunity to test, how did they become 10 times better than sure. the other bands out there? So Iron Maiden is part of a movement called the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. So they sort of take the world by storm. It's this totally new take. You know, like it's you have Led Zeppelin and Thin Lizzy. That's like, that's metal or that's rock music. And then when you get to the Iron Maidens and the Judas Priests of the world, it's fundamentally different. So there is, and music is a little different because I think there's less competition in music, but um it, it is a fundamentally new innovation. It's like sort of too guitar driven. Uh, it's it's it, it's got big over the top singing. Um, it, it was an innovative band, and then what they add to that is the imagery and the artwork and this sort of self contained universe around the stuff. I think I think there's a number of musical innovations in Iron Maiden, definitely. Um, but I think I, I think you make a good point. What I see a lot of like when I'll deal with companies, they'll go like. This is like Facebook, but it's better for this reason. Do you know what I mean? Or when I, I'll give you an example with my own writing. When I decided to write a book about Stoicism, I looked at all the different books. I'd read everything there ever was about Stoicism. I'd read all the originals and I'd read all the books about it. And I basically realized there was nothing. There was nothing that I could just add. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't my my big beef with all the books in the space were that they were just repeating what the originals had said in a way that wasn't interesting to the vast majority of ordinary people. Right. So 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 I've read your book on yeah. Stoicism and the two other, let's say, main contemporary books on Stoicism. So I, uh, I'll try to remember the names. The one by William Ir Irving, Irvine, uh -huh. uh, and then the one by Massimino. Uh, oh, Massimo, the How to Be a Stoic one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've read those and your, so, so, so in your oh, yeah. words. I can I, talk about this. Yeah. So I think, uh, and I think Massimo's book is very good. I blurbed it. I think he's a good person. I'm glad he wrote it. I think it's a mistake to put Stoic in the title of the book. I mean, I wrote a book called The Daily Stoic, but that that is for a very specific niche of people. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a mistake to put Stoic in the title because people don't like the word Stoic. The right, or, they, or they don't want to read about Greek philosophy. Exactly. People, but so I, I sat down when I was, I sold a book about Stoicism to my publisher, and then I had to sit down and go, okay. What is this book? How how do I write it so it reaches a large audience and helps lots of people? And I sat down and I said, lots of uh, very few people wake up in the morning and think I have a problem. I need philosophy, but a lot of people wake up in the morning and think I have problems. I need solutions. So if I can present 
philosophy as a solution to the problem, I can reach those people. If I present, if I present it as philosophy, they will think it's not for them. Right. And so that is that to me is the one of the most essential parts of thinking about creating any creative work and I and specifically creating work that lasts is going here's what I want to do but what's the best way for me to get at that right it's like a lawyer sits down to make their argument they don't just throw a lot of evidence at you they go what are the best pieces of evidence what's the best way for me to make my case so so part of it is like and let's look at, at that stoicism example again so your book was called the obstacles the way right and um and then an excellent follow-up, ego is the enemy, is also related to, to stoicism. Uh-huh. Uh, you basically had a bunch of tools at your disposal. It wasn't like you're kind of out of the blue thinking, oh, I'm going to write about stoicism and philosophy. You had one tool, which is uh, you knew the whole, not only the history of stoicism, but the history of books being written about stoicism uh-huh. and how they did. So you wanted to make something that was different from them. Yeah. And, and you thought about it in a, in, in a certain way. This other thing you had was you saw and you helped create kind of the success of many other writers like, let's say, Robert Greene or Tim Ferriss or Tucker Max, where you helped them market their books and do mm-hmm. their research in some cases. So you saw the thinking process of people who tried, like Robert Greene wrote a book about leadership that's different from any other book about leadership. Completely. He created his own genre mm-hmm. of like diving into the lessons of history without writing a history book or writing a specifically a leadership book. He sure. called it The 48 Laws of Power, which is a very unusual title too. Sure. So it reminds me of- um, But wait, I had one other mm-hmm. tool. Also, I'd also built up an audience of fans, right? So right. I'm not launching to, to no one, right? I think that's the other element. It's like, you know, Seinfeld isn't the first thing that Jerry Seinfeld does. He has fans all over the country. He has fans inside the network at NBC. You know what I mean? It's it's about your relationships and your audience and all these things that also help you launch. It's easier to launch a perennial seller later in your career than it is as your first thing, let's say. Because of like you like you point out just then it was just as important for Seinfeld to have fans within the network as he had fans uh, you know, he had fans yeah. obviously from the Tonight Show. Now again, Seinfeld didn't do so well its first season, right? In in and the kind of the saying that's always made. I don't know if it's true or not. If Seinfeld were made today, it probably would have been canceled the first sure. season with with low ratings. But maybe it wouldn't because maybe he would have had the same allies at NBC who would have given him that chance. You know, right. like you need like my when the obstacle is the way it came out. It didn't sell super well at first. It sold okay, but the publisher was. Invested in me, and they they'd already bought my next book, uh, which by the way is very rare for a yes. publisher now to be invested in an author. Like, and I they, think they, that's they don't a really mistake. Think of investing in careers; they want to invest in as many books as possible, and one of them might be a hit. Yeah, and and I think that's I think that's a mistake, and I think because of that, they have to publish more and more books to get luckier and luckier. And you know, it's like my books sell, you know, let's say five thousand copies a week across the titles. Um, but that's that's a better that's an easier tar- that's actually an easier target to hit than to have one book that sells five thousand copies week in and week out, right? Um, and I would to go back to the stoicism discussion. I would say what's interesting about competition, and again, Peter Thiel talks about this all the time. I think everyone who's creating should read Zero to One and think about this. Is like his publisher, Massimo's publisher, probably looked at the sales 
of my two books or my three books on stoicism and said, oh, this is also a book about stoicism. So this book will sell really well. And it, it has sold well and I'm, I'm happy for him how it's doing. But they, people, people associate competition with like rewards and it's actually the, the area you don't want to be in because now his book is fighting my books for sales, right? As opposed to being in his own niche where he's the only one. And by the way, until you just said that, I thought his book was older than your book because right. it's about ancient Greek philosophy. Right. So it feels like an, one of those old school academic sure. kind of books. Sure. So you know, it reminds me also, and you don't mention this perennial. You don't go into the art world in this book as much, but like think about Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. So Andy Warhol was already maybe the best illustrator in New York City. The guy had. Uh, magnificent technique and he could look at anything and draw it and it would be perfect. Right. And so he already knew he could be a great artist and he already had the personality. He was already creating a scene around himself, but he needed something to do. So he was thinking of taking old 1950s comic books and doing something kind of kitschy with them. Mm-hmm. But then he saw Roy Lichtenstein was doing it, so he just, he he couldn't do it. Right. He had a he he switched to the Campbell's soup cans right. and created his own kind of genre sure. of pop art. And so that's another example where he, he had the skills, right. he had the scene, he had the network. He just needed to do something that was kind of that not 50% better, like not doing comic books better than Roy Lichtenstein, right. but just something completely different. Well, and I think people need to realize that I think a lot of artists think that this is like um, this is like the business part of thing. Like you make your art, and then maybe you think about these things later. Mm. To me, this is the most important part of the creative process. This is the puzzle that I find to be most intellectually and creatively challenging. Right? It's like, what can I make? How do I make it? What's the best way to do it? You know, what's going to be the most interesting? What's going to be the newest? You know, and I think people go. Well, I want to write about a book about this, so I'm going to write a book about that, and then uh, you know, once it's done, then I'll figure out what title to put on it, I'll figure out what cover to put on it, and then uh, I'll get some publicity and it'll sell. And it's like if they if they accidentally got all the things that we're talking about right, sure, but they didn't stop and go, who is this for? What's the best way to tackle it? Is there competition? Who am I launching this to? You know, these are really essential questions that you have to think about. I remember. We met probably not far from here in New York City, and we talked about choose yourself when you were thinking about doing it. And we had a number, you know, we we talked about the title, and I think nailing the title was a huge part of it. Um, I remember uh, we talked about, you know, you wanted it to be this self help book, which it is, but we had a conversation about what the intro should be. That the intro should be rooted in, you know, the this larger economic reality of the collapse of jobs and the collapse right. you know you have this you tell that story in the beginning of the book about looking out at the buildings and going this is all going to be this is all empty and that was rooted in you know sort of the post financial crisis but it's also just it's a larger economic trend that transcends just like that one moment in time and tied in with my personal story yes and your expertise and mm-hmm. and all these things i think Choose yourself without that introduction. It, it just goes into why you should choose yourself, or the art of choosing yourself, or you know whatever. I think that book doesn't do as well. So I right. think these are these are really important decisions that people think they can tack on later, but you act, it's impossible to tack them on later. You can't 
open a coffee shop and then go, actually, this is a co-working space, right? It's like you have to decide at the beginning. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Thumbtack. Thumbtack makes it easy to find and hire skilled, local professionals for anything on your list of things to do or things that you need. From home improvement projects to event planning to personal wellness, Thumbtack connects you with professionals offering more than 1,100 different services nationwide. Simply tell Thumbtack a little bit about your project. Then within 24 hours, you'll have up to five estimates from local pros that match your criteria. Check out their prices and reviews. Pretty much anyone you need to hire is on Thumbtack. Carpet cleaners, personal trainers, photographers, even piano teachers. Anyway, Thumbtack will help you find pros in over 1,000 different categories in all 50 states. Thumbtack has so many services available. True story, I recently used Thumbtack to fix my computer. It was easy. I just went to thumbtack.com, I searched for computer, and then the rest of the keywords just sort of filled themselves in. So I clicked computer repair, and they immediately told me there were 200 plus people in my area who could do the job. Seriously, no matter the project, you'll find the help you need on Thumbtack. Thumbtack makes it easy to find pros for pretty much anything you need done. Download the app or try it now at Thumbtack.com. That's Thumbtack.com. Are you hiring? Because I kind of think you might be. Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. So you mentioned Catcher in the Rye mm-hmm. in your book. And uh, at the time, could you have said, I mean, nobody could have said, but you know, when he wrote it, it just seemed like this coming-of-age story of a privileged Upper East Side kid named Holden Caulfield. You know, how where where's the perennial aspects there? Maybe there wasn't such an extreme coming-of-age story at the time, but do you think he consciously went through kind of what's the history of coming-of-age stories? How do I make the next leap in that uh, genre? Well, from what I understand about Salinger is that he was he had this sort of weird childhood and then he was profoundly affected by what he saw in World War II. Like people don't realize hmm. like he pro- he almost certainly came back with some form of PTSD. Um I mean he he 
he served in what's called the Hurtgen Forest, I believe, which is one of the most brutal, horrible fighting of the Second World War. And so he came back kind of like frozen in time. Like he, that his inner child was sort of like frozen. Do you know what I mean? And so I think it's not that it's a coming of age story, which is a perennial genre. It's that he wrote a book that captures what it means to feel like an angsty young person. I, I, I saw, I watched that documentary about the book and, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is in it for some reason, and he says that Catcher in the Rye is like the autobiography of Malcolm X for young white boys, <laughs> and it's totally right. So it's <laughs> it's perennial in that sense, in that every year there's somebody every year, hundreds of thousands or millions of people all over the world turn sixteen. But I feel like know? he couldn't have planned that. Like so, if you're but he was capturing an essence that he was speaking about a truth of the human experience that no one had yet spoken to. There, there was no book before Catcher in the Rye that speaks to that experience the way that he did. So I think that's part of it. Um, but as I do talk about in the book, and this is where I think positioning and packaging matter. You know, he saw this as that he saw that book as this important work of literary greatness. You know, it's in the New Yorker, whatever. The reason that book became really popular is because um, it had a pulp. Co- it beca- that book became a success in paperback, and it had this salacious cover of Holden Caulfield standing outside of a um, of a strip club. And I'm forgetting the tagline, but I can find it for you. It's he has this tagline in the book that's uh, that's amazing, and it's it says, uh, "Let's see here. We can talk about something else if you want." But um, oh. It says, uh, this unusual book may shock you, will make you laugh, and may break your heart, but you will never forget it. That's the subtitle of The Catcher in the Rye on the pulp paperback. So that book blew up, not because it was this highbrow literary thing, but because it was it was this sort of low, grungy, almost salacious art at first. So but at the same time, uh, look at his network. So he didn't necessarily have... A huge audience of fans, or low, maybe he did, but he did have. He had already published a bunch of stories in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. so he had kind of like his literary network all laid out. He did have some fans from his readers of his short stories. Yeah. So, so he had put some time into building that, you know, 1950s version of a platform. Yeah, and 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 though I wouldn't underestimate the paperback part of things, and this is something that I think a lot of creators struggle with. It's like you make this great work. And then you think the world is like eagerly anticipating it, but they're not. You know, Raymond Chandler is considered the greatest detective story writer ever, not just because he wrote these great books, but because he embraced the paperback and he sold his books really, really cheaply. Um, and it allowed him to develop a mass audience. So I think um, being willing to go mass market to reach lots of people is how is also one of the ways to create some level of lasting, right? Like if you're not, like people don't like to give their work away for free. Publishers hate that. You know, musicians uh, want to get paid. You know, like we, we, we're, we're anti-free in the artistic community or anti-cheap because we think it devalues our art. But that's also how you develop a crowd. That's how you reach the people who become the hardcore fans of your work. Right, you point out uh, Paulo Coelho, uh, Actively pirates uh, his own work. Yeah, he, he sends to other countries. He, pi- mm-hmm. he goes on all the pirating sites and gives away for free, right? Just so people know him. And then, how many copies of his books has he sold? Uh, hun- literally hundreds of millions. Yeah. You know, I give away almost over when the obstacle since the obstacle is the way has come out. I've I think I've given away 
at least one thing from each chapter in some form of an article. But each one of those is selling. You know, it's like if you make something that's good, the best sales pitch for that thing is that thing. But we don't realize the burden that it takes to get to it. You know what I mean? Um, you don't know that you love a restaurant until you eat there. So if it's expensive, you might not eat there at first. Or you don't know that you like a movie until you've seen it. But it's a pain in the ass to go see a movie. So in some ways, piracy or innovative marketing techniques helps you reach that audience, which you ultimately need to have an audience over the long term. I found Iron Maiden because I was in 2001, I was trying to pirate a Metallica song on uh, Kazaa or Morpheus, one of the pirating sites, and I downloaded an Iron Maiden song on accident, and then I loved it, and I've since spent literally thousands of dollars on their stuff. Do you know what I mean? And, and since they weren't on the radio in 2001, that would have been the only way that I could really discover them. Hmm. So, so a lot of this stuff, like let's say with Catcher in the Rye, a lot of these things are just kind of circumstances yeah. are a big part of what makes something perennial. Uh-huh. And, and yet we all, every uh, artist creator, business person, anybody who has to communicate an idea. And and now communication is so much more important just because there's Twitter, there's Facebook, there's books, there's articles, there's everything. There's all these open source platforms. It's so hard to stand out. Mm-hmm. Like what's, how do we move beyond the, the basic circumstances of our lives to, sure. to try to actively create something perennial? Well, and what I try to do in my writing is try to look at things that have happened in history, or in this case, in the history of art and creativity, and go, this might have been accidental, or this might have been uh, unconscious for the person doing it, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a lesson from it and apply it, right? So it's like, Salinger actually didn't want to be a pulp paperback. And as soon as he had the power with the publisher to revert back to the famous red cover of The Catcher in the Rye, he did. But it was also instrumental in his success. So what I'm not saying is that he created Catcher in the Rye as a perennial seller on purpose and he knew how this thing would work, play out with paperbacks. But that doesn't mean you can't borrow that strategy in your own career. So I think that's that's part of it. But I, I think... In terms of breaking out, you part of this is just one of the ways to break out of the noise is to go where there's less noise, right? So that that's that's why that the decision to avoid competition to do something new is a creative decision, but ultimately a marketing decision as well. It has marketing implications. I think being willing to attack the status quo, to say things that are controversial, to take risks, to be brash and 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 bold, I think that's important too. Like uh, again, when Rick Rubin is saying uh, the best art divides the audience, he's saying you have to be okay with half or a significant portion of people not liking your stuff. And you can do that if you know who your stuff is for. So it's like, I know... So you have to have some, a certain honesty internally to know yeah. who your stuff is for. Yes. You can't be... For everyone. You can't, And you can't be overly commercial. Yes. Even though you want commercial success. Yes. Well, let's take you know, let's take something that's overly commercial. Like let's say the firm by John Grisham. Uh-huh. That's probably a perennial seller. Like yeah, John definitely. Grisham is the top of the heap in terms of like legal thrillers, and, sure. and they continue to sell, and and he always does well. What do you think? So so he wasn't even the first legal thriller guy. Like there was Scott yeah. Turow, there was a couple other people. Um, but what do you think really broke it out for him? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, his. I think he did two self-published books before that yeah, that didn't a, really sell. A Time to Kill, and I think The Firm might have been self-published. So, so it's it's not as if he's he certainly was not like people are like oh it's a commercial book. He certainly it wasn't. No one thought it was commercial when it came out. So mm-hmm. it's like you got to give him. It actually was probably bold and brave to do what he was doing. Like mm-hmm. he was doing what everyone else said wouldn't work. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's part of it. And look, um, Ian Fleming. There's a wonderful book which you would love. I might have recommended this already, but uh, it's called Man with the Golden Typewriter, and it's Ian Fleming who created James Bond. It's his letters. He when his first book was successful, he rewarded himself by buying a golden typewriter. Um, but he talks about this. It's like he knew, he was like, look, the James Bond books are doing well, they're selling well. He knew that fundamentally the way that that his stuff would get taken to the next level was movies. So a lot of his letters are about his maneuvering and strategy and work. He's like, look, I'm going to keep selling. I'm going to be an okay, successful author. But if I want to be like a world-changing, massive author, I got to get these books to the screen. Well, and we, I wonder if that was part of it with the firm. Which, which reminds me also of, you know, a lot of what you write about is about doing yeah. as opposed to just writing or thinking yeah. or whatever. Uh, and a lot of your marketing around the books that you've done have been about doing things almost that are unrelated to the book. But yeah. when you do something... That's what people write about. People yeah. are not going to write about the contents of another sure. piece of writing. Right. They're going to write about something you do. Yeah. So, so um, there's very little press that goes new book is out. You right. know, but you know, new author runs naked through Times Square. That's a thing, and you might get attention for that. Well, well, when we were brainstorming back in 2013 about choose yourself, uh, the 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 marketing wasn't really about. The, the contents of the book and the value of the book was going to speak for itself once yeah. people read it. But we were always thinking of what could we do yes. around it. So, for instance, I attempted to run for Congress, yeah. or I sold the book. And you mentioned this in in Perennial Hill. I attempted to sell the book just Bitcoin only at first, right. and that got me, you know, I national bought attention. Bitcoin when you did that, hmm? I should have bought Bitcoin when you did that. Yeah, I would was, be uh, very. The, I yeah, wouldn't need to even be here or write the, any books the, anymore. The Bitcoin has yeah. done well since yeah. then, um, but. Uh, uh, I always think it's about you know a lot of companies now talk about content marketing mm-hmm. instead of advertising. Right. They're like, oh, let's write about what we believe right. in instead of just have a big banner. Yeah. But I don't even think content marketing is good anymore. Because most of it's boring. Yeah. Right. You no, have to they, actually do stuff. Right. No, they should be. Um, you know, like with American Apparel, I remember. I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, one of the. One of the big things the company did was it took a stand on immigration. It pissed a lot of people off, but it created a whole political campaign about wanting immigration reform, like liberal immigration reform, not Trump immigration reform. But in doing so, um, it got a ton of public. It's advertising got publicity, right? When you do things, you get you can get publicity, um, and so it's important. But it's important you have to know who your fans are so you can be. You can know what they want and what they're going to agree with, and then you can know what who your not fans are, and then you can know that you don't have to care what those people think. I think that's really critical because there is the tendency to. I mean, in today's world, everybody could comment, yeah, right. So you put up a YouTube video, everyone's going to comment, right? And people always say, "Oh, I ignore the YouTube comments, whatever," right. but. Sometimes a negative comment will just by accident hit sure. that nerve right. and will bother you. Right. Or I mean, companies are now like hostage to their own social media stuff where, you know, there's advertiser boycotts which just started happening. Um, 
they don't realize that the people that are starting the advertiser boycott aren't their customers and don't even care about this thing. They're just trying to apply pressure. And so if you know who your customers are, you know which controversies are important and you know which ones are meaningless. You um, you bring up something really interesting with uh, Star Wars, which I think applies to a lot of perennial uh, works. Like, and I'll, I'll even relate Star Wars to The Legend of Bagger Vance uh-huh. by our mutual friend yep. Stephen Pressfield, which is take an old ancient story that's been, and I always use this phrase, an ancient, like the story of Jesus Christ has been focus grouped for mm-hmm. successfully for 2,000 years sure. by a billion people. Right. So a billion people have been in the focus group and said this, not only do they like it, they love it, they believe right. in it, they have faith in it. And so essentially George Lucas took that story and mm-hmm. made it and put a science fiction trapping around it. Right. Legend of Bagger Vance, which Stephen Pressfield's even admitted, it's a, a a golf story that takes place in the 1920s, but almost word for word, or at least scene by scene, he borrows from a 3,000-year-old uh, Hindu document sure. called the Bhavaga Gita. Yeah. So when you take these old stories and put them in a modern cloak, that also has a, uh, a strong feeling on people because we know completely. the feeling worked. But I think it's that's a really important artistic and marketing decision, right? It's to Stephen Pressfield obviously sat down and said, I love the I I love that story, but it's not gonna work if I tell it as it's told originally. That he said, but you know, 1920s golf is is that's nostalgic, it's beautiful, it's American, it's all he he saw that. If he rooted, if he if he took this thing and put it in this context, it would reach an audience, right? And so, like with stoicism, it, that's it's stoicism is how I, is my personal philosophy. It's how I think about, I nerd out about it. But I realize that most people don't think that way and are not interested in that. Like it's like just as these the story of Jesus Christ has been focus grouped for three thousand years, the word stoic has been focus grouped for two thousand years. And people think it's a bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if I say he stood there stoically while his mother died, you know, they'd be like, "Why wasn't he crying?" Like, they would think that there's a, you're a monster, you mm-hmm. know. So I was saying, this is what I like. This is what I'm interested in. But it's not the context. It, it has a context or an appearance that is at first alienating to people who could benefit from it. So, what is a context? that I could give it to people, that it would be more palatable. And, uh, you know, what's the sugar with the medicine, right? And um, so the idea of stories, of great stories from great men and women from history, those stories have also been focus groups. So I'm going to pick the stories that match the principles and put them together in a context. And, And... I know that that genre of books has worked well in the past. I know it's something I've experienced. Robert Greene's technique, for instance, in exactly. all of his books. Right. Robert Greene doesn't tell you what the 48 Laws of Power are. He shows you how the 48 Laws of Power work. And so that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go, Seneca says you should do this. I wanted to take something that Seneca said and illustrate it by principles. Now, this is also a histo- like this is what Plutarch does, right? This is what all the, the great Roman and Greek biographers have done. But for some reason, a lot of the people in who are really into Stoicism uh, don't don't like that. Like they think that I've done something wrong or it upsets them, which is totally fine. 
but they're not who I was writing a book for. So it doesn't bother, like when they say, you know, Ryan is taking, uh, like I'll, I see this criticism all the time. They'll go, Ryan took someone like Rockefeller, who's a bad person and tried to illustrate stoicism through his life. That's why you shouldn't read this book. And I go, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do and exactly why it's resonating with a large audience and you're entirely missing the point. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, I know who my, I know what my audience, the audience I'm trying to reach needs. And I know that it comes, these, the best art divides the audience, right? There is a cost to that. And the cost is that the purists don't like it, or the, we call them the fundamentalists in the Stoic community. It's not for them, or they don't think it's for them because it's not for them. So, so p- part of it is, again, understanding the history of the genre. So there's mm-hmm. been a history of books written about philosophy and stoicism and what worked and what didn't. Then it's understanding what ideas have resonated through and survived the test of time and then kind of showing them in a modern kind of next generation way. So Star yeah. Wars, you could say, I'm simplifying it because yeah. um, it's more the the Joseph Campbell's The Ark of the Hero. Mm-hmm. But like with Star Wars, essentially it took, takes the story of Jesus and turns it into a science fiction yeah. format. So where, no matter what religion you are, you don't recognize that. He doesn't say, right. Right. you know, this guy is Anakin is Jesus yeah. or whatever. He just does the story. Yeah. And uh, 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 and then he says, hey, when people go to the movies, they like to see fight scenes and spaceships and they like to see technology and they also like jokes, you know? And he's like, I'm going to put all that in there. So, right. And he took it next generation, like the special effects. Mm-hmm. No one had ever seen that before. Right. Kind of the the epic size of it, no one had ever seen before. Yeah. Like the cinematography was different than any movie before. Right. It's also, it's not a 50, it's not, you know, how, how are there 10? It's not a 10 hour movie. It's, you know, it's, it's 10 two hour movies. Right. Right. Um, and so he, he's also, he's understanding the commercial landscape. He's understanding human nature. You know, you've got to think about these things. Like, so when I wrote Perennial, I originally, I sold my publisher a book about book marketing. And then, uh, cause that's what I, that's one of the things my company does. And I, I, I have a pretty unparalleled track record there. But as I sat down to think about, I remember I was giving a talk in Puerto Rico and I was just needing to start to get serious about writing the book. And I, and, and as I left the talk, you know, I was talking to the people who liked it and they said it was great and they'd read my books and all this stuff. And then I thought, there's no way if I write a book about book marketing that I could ever reach any of the people in this room. Because even though I take lessons from books that apply to my business at large, they they don't see themselves as needing lessons in book. There's no there's like one book marketing conference of or book conference of any weight. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to be able to reach any of the people in this room if I do a book about book marketing. And you know I look at the creative landscape and there's lots of books about book marketing. So I decide to pivot and I change around this concept of what's perennial, what lasts, what's. I don't. I don't want to write a book that I'm going to have to rewrite in two years when some of the tactics change. So these are really important things that you have to think about. And again, I think you have to think about them if you're opening a, a pop up shop to sell T-shirts too. You know, like whatever you're doing, these things matter. If you're writing a screenplay, you're going to be a painter. You have to be thinking about 
the different, the, you have to get all the pieces right. You don't just make what's for you so, or so else has an audience of one. Let's brainstorm for a yeah. second. Um, so the pop-up store on t-shirts. Yeah. Okay, I want to create... Uh, uh, or or a store in general yeah, on t-shirts. Sure. Uh, I want to create a perennial yeah. feeling type of store. Um, now the genre of t-shirt stores exists. Right. Uh, t-shirts are creative. There are creative t-shirts out there that exist. What's maybe one way I can start thinking that would make it a little bit kind of. 10x instead of 20% better. Well, look, think think about American Apparel, where I was the director of marketing, and, and look, the company had some difficulties that prevented it from being as perennial as it could have continued to be, but it was around for 20 years. And what did Dove do? He said, you know, most t-shirts are not made for ordinary people, right? They're made... They're, the sizes, it's like this one size fits all mentality. The fabric sucks. It's made in a sweatshop, you know, all these things. And he said, I don't, I'm, I'm, I question all those assumptions. I think a t shirt should feel good. I think it should fit well. I don't think it should exploit anyone. And I know that my, the people I know in my community agree with that. And so he makes this, you know, he makes the American, American Apparel's number one selling product was called the 2001. That was its t shirt. Um, and it's, I think, one of the best T-shirts ever made. And one of the things he thought about when he was making his T-shirts and hoodies, and he was like, I want to make things that you can buy in a vintage shop 10 years from now. Like He loved how clo- you could go into a vintage shop and it's only the clothes that survived that are in that vintage shop. He's like, I want to make those kind of products now. And he said, the other problem with the fashion industry is that the fashion industry thinks in seasons, right? What are we making this fall? What are, like right now, they're already their fall lines are already going into production, and they're planning their winter and spring lines, and then next year they'll start the whole process over again. And he said, "Why wouldn't it be better to make a T-shirt that's perfect and sell it every year?" So he did. He created a perennial apparel company, one of the first ones ever, by making really great products, and only a few of those products, and letting them develop an audience. So instead of trying to sell one trendy t-shirt to everyone. He wanted to sell the same t-shirt to someone every year or you know whenever they wore it out. So it 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 makes me think a little bit of uh when uh, Facebook and Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Peter Thiel earlier and Peter Thiel was one of the first investors in Facebook. Yeah. And so I asked Peter Thiel when he was on the podcast uh you know there was seven social networks before Facebook. And yeah. you're always going on like, don't compete, don't yeah. try to be the same thing as everyone else. What made Facebook different? And his answer was, Facebook was the, so you know, there was GeoCities, there was Friendster, there was MySpace, yeah. there was uh, Tribe.com, there was a whole bunch of things. Uh, he said Facebook was the first one with real identity. Like you yeah. had to, initially you had to have a .edu email address, yep. you had to be a real student. Right. Then you had to work for a real company yeah. and they checked this somehow. Yeah. I forget how they did it, but it was, so so it was an interesting point. That it was the, mm-hmm. And even to this day, you're not allowed to be, you're not allowed to have a fake Facebook account. Right, you can have a joke Twitter account, but you you can't have a fake Facebook account. You have to be you. I thought that was interesting. That yeah. was his way of not, even though he was in the genre yeah. of social networks, he also had no competition. There was no competition of social networks where identity was authenticated. Yeah, and and look, it's it's not that it's not that you you have to go do something totally new all the time. But it's like if you're going to write a western, don't truck in all the western cliches because now you're going to have to go up against all. 
best Westerns that have ever been written. But if you did something new or unique or special, like I think uh, Cowboys and uh, what Cowboys and Aliens is a very underrated movie as a John Favreau movie, and it's like he was like, I want to make a western in 2014 or whenever it was. Like, pe- what can I do that's unique or interesting about this genre? I think it's a great movie. But so so okay, let's let's brainstorm yeah. some more. So leadership books. Yeah, there's a thousand leadership books out there. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of them just totally suck. And then they go, the authors go on and make speeches that are so yeah. boring. And it's a whole industry of leadership. Uh-huh. What would, if you wanted to make a perennial, and there are some perennial books about le- leadership, like yeah. The One Minute Manager is a yeah. perennial book about leadership that always sells. Right. So if you wanted to now look at that industry and make a perennial book about leadership, how would you start thinking about it? Um, I might make uh, almost all the leadership books are like, uh, here's how to do it. Uh, an interesting way might be like, here's like, a book of leadership failures. Like here's all the things that terrible leaders do. Mm-hmm. That would be a real. You could write the same. Like I, I did this with ego. I wanted to write a book about humility. I realized it wasn't working, and so I wrote a book about the cost of ego, which is the it's the same book with the same principles, but a different angle. So it's like you might think you have this book on leadership of all the things that you want people to do. Just flip it and go. Here's what bad leaders do. Or what if you wrote a book? That help people decide whether they are a leader or not, because mm. not everyone is, right? Like, so maybe this book is, um, you know, you, you should be the CEO, you should be the COO and not the CEO. Um, that I like might, that number two, right? You could, that could be the title of the book. That, no, that, that's <laughs> right, right. Uh, or yeah, or you are not a leader because uh, there's that book. You are, you are a badass. It could just be you are not a leader, right? Um, but yours is better because number two. Uh, is more counterintuitive where you as not a, you are not a leader is negative. N- number two, and then the subtitle: "Be the best you could be." <laughs> yes, I love it. Uh, yes, that's amazing. Um, I might do a book on. Um, I just read this book. Uh, it's an old book. I didn't like it that much, but it was an interesting concept. Where it's like Hannibal and me. Um, I like books where people will go like the leadership lessons of Julius Caesar or the leadership lessons of Genghis Khan. Like take someone. I, I bet you could write a book right now that would do well. That would be like leadership lessons from Richard Nixon, and it would do well right now because Nixon is in the news because of Trump. But it could be perennial because Nixon is always going to be controversial, right? So maybe there's leadership lessons from people that you wouldn't think you could learn from, that you think you should do the opposite of, right? Hitler came to power somehow, right? And he managed to be in power for a long time. There must be something he did that that a non-psychopath could learn from, right? So like, what are negative things that, what are, Good things you could learn from bad people. That might be another lesson. Yeah, now I'm picturing the Richard Nixon one because you yep. know he, of course, opened up with China. You could almost have like a red book, like the Mao Tse Tung book. Yeah, and it's like the red book of Richard Nixon. Yeah, and part of the reason he did those things was to distract. He had to distract people from the stuff that he just messed up. You know, um, so that could be an interesting lesson. You know, you could do an all female one. That might be an interesting take. So I'd just be think I'd be going. What is everyone else doing? And I want to do not that. That's probably the easiest place to start from. Um, you know, I, 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 I was thinking um, that a lot of people lack strategic clarity. Like they don't. They try. They're trying to do everything all at once. They don't actually know what they want. To me, what a leader has is like clear understanding of what they're. And we talked about this, but what they're trying to do and not do. 
And I think a book on that topic would do really well also. Mm. Yeah, how to decide kind of which column things are in. Right, like Essentialism is a wonderful book, but like what is essentialism for leaders? You know, how do how how would you apply that to the leadership part of it? Now, one one thing you mentioned in the book, you have this phrase particip- Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. sorry. You know what's another great concept on someone who did this is like sales books. Everyone writes sales books and yeah. none of them sell. And Dan Pink wrote to sell as human. And so he took this thing that everyone thinks is scammy and gross and he turned it into a manifesto, like a love story almost. And of course, every sales organization had to have him come talk. Every salesperson loved the book because it's, you know, um, I worked on a book a couple years ago called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. How many people work in the oil and gas industry? They don't think they're bad people. And I wouldn't say that they are, but they don't think they're bad people. And so he wrote a book that gives them a new way of thinking about what they do. And that's, I think that's really important. So one thing you say, I mean, as part of when you start to veer into the marketing, so there's kind of like the the creative nuances you have to master to, to develop a perennial, and then there's the, the marketing. And yeah. one thing you say, before you get into platform, you say participate, participate, participate. Yeah. And... That's actually really hard at some point. Like yeah. you can't go to every conference, every sure. meeting. You can't go on every uh, every podcast. You can't uh, participate in everything, or else you get no work done. No, that's true. It is a balance, but I think people, some people don't don't see. They think that their work is just to make the painting and then they're done, or to write the book and then they're done. But I think it's like the writing the book. Uh, I I told the. David Burkus, this I was saying, uh, your job is not to publish books. You're a writer who occasionally publishes books, right? And so it's like, that's mm. how I see it is that I'm writing all the time and occasionally I have a book come out. So it's, it's, I'm not, I don't do my work over here in isolation and occasionally I come up for air and interact with people. Well, it's the I, other way around. I, I find um, what's really important is to have an umbrella. Understanding of what your field is. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I always use Louis C.K. as an example. So, people say, okay, he's a stand up comic, but he's a stand up comic who used to be the head writer of various late night yep. shows like Conan and the Chris Rock show. He's, ri- he's, he's written or developed, you know, three or four different sitcoms. He's produced another, like, he's produced another four or five sitcoms. He's produced other people's uh, comic tours yep. and negotiate to get them on Netflix or yep. wherever. Uh, the guy, I think he's written for other comedy or comedians. Yeah, he's he's done every aspect. He's done an sure. umbrella. So yep. people say, well, where should you focus? Should he have just done stand-up comedy? I think if he had just done that, he wouldn't be the comedian he is today. I think, sure. I think at some point you have to figure out what your umbrella is. So for instance, I write... Uh, but I podcast and I get a lot of material from the podcasting. I syndicate on many publications mm-hmm. my and, and write for many other publications. I give talks. I do other things to get material for the writing. Because right. again, you have to do also to get yeah. material. Yeah. You can't just sure. sit in your house. Right. No, I think it's true. You got it. Like, I realized that um, I could be on podcasts all day. So I tried, I've severely limited the amount that I do so I can spend more time writing. But it's also just as like, where's the, you've got to know, like, where's the ROI on your participation? You know, it's like, um, you could spend all day on Twitter interacting with people, but is it selling books? Is it bringing in new fans? You got to be able to look at the numbers and know. 
you know? Yeah, so so like how many things, so even though you say participate, 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 I think it's very strategic. Like yes. how many things do you get asked to per day that you don't, that you say no to? Yeah, a large number, uh, more now. Because when I read that in the book, I felt a little guilty. Like, oh, I'm, I'm say I blow off most people. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I mean, look, your your form of participation is mostly in what you make, right? Like, you're make you're participating by putting yourself out. I mean, I see you all the time. I'm like, yeah, I James definitely is, go everywhere. Yeah, I definitely am I'm everywhere. Like, <laughs> is James just answering random questions on Quora today? Like, you 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 don't have. You're the you have the opposite of the participation problem. You can't stop yourself from participating. Right. You know, now I'm trying to yeah. not say yes to as many. I mean, I wrote the book, The Power of No. Yeah. Not because I'm an expert in it, but because I need to learn it. But see, and that's that's a good that's it's like, hey, I'm having this problem. Lots of people have this problem. By exploring it, maybe I'll solve the problem for myself and learn something and help other people. That that book made total sense. Yeah. And then you know, the next thing is is on platform. You know, and and like you mentioned, every publisher, the first thing they ask an aspiring author now is, how, "What's your platform?" Right. That, in fact, that's the that's the kind of cliche, annoying question they all ask yeah. now. And if you don't have a platform, they simply walk you to the door. Unless you have a, an amazing, mind blowing idea, right? Like you, you know, which everybody gonna, thinks they do, but sure. very few people do. Sure, right. You know, you're the first person to write a biography of Elon Musk. Doesn't matter what your platform is. You got your platform is the person you're writing about, right? right. But there are there are ways to get around it. But yes, it, it what I say is that it's the idea and the platform. They have to add up to a very high number, you know. And uh, the smaller your platform, the better the idea has to be. And and I would say you you talk a lot. I mean, the one kind of tactical thing you you mentioned in this book. So so. A everything you say about perennial sellers is extremely important, and this is a topic that fascinates me. Like, you know, what makes Star Wars great? What makes the Beatles great? Right. What makes the Shawshank Redemption or the Firm or Facebook or whatever great? All of these questions you answer so well, and I've never seen them answered so well in in one book. Um, and then the only uh, and to your credit, the the main tactical advice you give is. The one thing that's not going away is email. You say yeah. build your email list. So Facebook may go away as a way to reach right. your fans, but email you can always have control over. That's your way to directly touch the people who appreciate what you do. And yeah. you and you give a great story of Kevin Hart. Yeah. I didn't even know Kevin Hart had an email list. Like that struck yeah. me as unusual. Yeah, I mean Kevin Hart was the sort of uh, up and coming young comic, you know, comedic actor. And then the show he was supposed to be in didn't work. The couple movies he was supposed to be in bombed, and he had to go back out on the road to make a living. And but he went back out on the road with a very specific idea of building a huge platform, specifically an email list, so he could sell his tickets um, directly to fans, not need to rely on advertising. And he built you know a huge email list. He would even he he. It's not like he ignored social media, but he hosted like the BET Awards so he could get more Twitter followers. Um, and so his idea was, I want to build a huge platform because that makes me in some ways independent. Like um, you've asked me a couple of times why I don't self-publish. And I don't self-publish because I, I don't think it's made sense for the books that I've done. But if tomorrow my publisher went out of business, I could self-publish. And I it, the only thing it would substantively change is like that I would have to invest in my books a little bit more upfront. But like I have my audience and I've worked to develop a relationship directly with them. And I think it's interesting, yeah. You know, Facebook is what, like ten or fifteen years old, uh, 
probably between there. Um, you know, Twitter is ten plus years old. Um, these things are they're, they're around, but they could go away. We have no idea how long it's going to be. And um, but email is like almost fifty years old. I don't. It's not going anywhere. Um, it could potentially, and, but right now it is the most perennial of all the mediums, and it's the one that you have the the most direct connection with. And and I think developing strategies to build those email lists, and you give some strategies. You speak with Noah Kagan, who's been a, a regular guest on this podcast as well, and he's been a partner of mine in terms yeah. of me building my own email list. You give some good strategies, but I think the most important one is say unique things on a lot of different platforms yeah. and have just a, a uh, an email link at the bottom, like "Hey, click here to to get yeah. my next thoughts on on this topic." Yeah, I mean, it you 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 have a call to action that converts at a certain percentage. So the more people you reach on all these different platforms, the more emails you're going to capture, the more address. And I'm starting to think even now um, with Daily Stoic, where we started to sell some physical products, we have. Mailing addresses too, and I mean, I know you with your like you sometimes you physically mail things to people, so it's like right. that's the most perennial. Like, doesn't matter technologically, it's things are going to change, but unless the singularity happens, we're all going to live in a physical place for you know some period of time. So, it, yeah, it's how can I reach you directly is what I, I want. I think also it's a good way to focus group the idea. Sure. So, so you people aren't gonna you know the you'll get a sense of the percentage that people read an article who then sign up for your email yeah. list. So you start to know for each article you write on each platform which platforms work for you, which topics work for you. You know, uh, to to build that that readership base. I think I think there's lots of a lot of testing can happen. Like sure. choose yourself. I would say was tested for a good three or four years. All Every chapter was sort of individually tested sure. before it kind of came together as a book. Yeah, And I think stuff like that's really important. Well, it's interesting when I look at my email address or my email list, You know, it started with 100 people. It was small enough that I could just uh, copy and paste them into the BCC field. Um, now it's like 80,000 or something. Uh, when I look at it, you know, it was sl- when my first book came out, it was like 3,000, you know, um, but it it has huge spikes each time I put out books because those books I put a call to action. I mean, the back of this book has a call to action on my email list. Each one of my books has my email list sold the first several thousand copies of the book, and then as the book took off and you know started to get publicity and press and word of mouth, now the books are selling the email list, which then allows me to tell them about my other books. Yeah, no, I think it's very powerful. Um, so I want to ask you. I want to ask you this. So okay. the, I mentioned to you earlier we were coming up here. This is the first year since. T- so I've written eighteen books. This is the first year since two thousand three that I'm not currently in the middle of writing at least one book. And I'm yeah. writing articles almost every day still, but I just don't feel any need to write a book. I've been kind of throwing it into podcasting and some other things. But uh, take this podcast. And you've worked with me since the beginning uh, of this podcast. I took your advice quite a bit, and I want to take this podcast to the next level. There's a lot of okay. like just kind of basic interview podcasts, and right. I'm kind of sick of all of them. Some of sure. them are good, some of them are not so good. But again, it's that phenomenon where I can't just be a thirty percent better interviewer than everyone else because sure. the average listener doesn't know how to recognize thirty percent right. versus zero. I want to be ten times better. Right. So, so the way I'm thinking is a uh, expand the number of 
podcasts I do because I think I offer a quality service, so might as well offer more of it. Second, I'm thinking of doing like mini series. Yep. So within the context of the podcast, so I'll do something with AJ Jacobs, who we both know, yeah. uh, where we each challenge each other to experiments every week sure. and do something fun there. Or I'm trying an experiment where I'm trying to get better at a skill I'm no good at, which is stand-up comedy, and then have do a bunch of episodes where, where comedians analyze yeah. my approach. So I, I'm just trying to think of things that are slightly off format. No, I love I love that. It's it's like looking at I, Tim does as well. Where sometimes he'll just have like an audiobook excerpt. Like he'll just have. It's like he's seeing it as a tube to put any kind of audio content down, not constraining himself by a one-on-one interview. So he doesn't get worried that just doing an an audiobook excerpt might be such a bad idea that he'll lose audience for his interview shows. I don't think so. I mean, obviously you have to be you have to know what your audience likes and and you have to make things you think they like, but it also, you know, there's there's a risk in doing anything new. But I would wonder if there's like almost like stories that you could do like you could have an episode about like how many i wonder how many of your if you took your most viral article and you turn it into a an expanded 22 minute episode audio episode how would it do when uh, like i was interviewed on that that podcast startup last year they did like a 10 episode arc about a single thing i wonder if you like what if you you decided to like take the first time you went bankrupt and you you talked about it, but then you also went and you interviewed people yeah, who, be a fun idea. who were like part of it. And so it was not just your perspective. Like, what would you learn from it? What would other people learn? And it's not as if you don't have evidence that the audience is interested in that topic. Cause clear or what if you did what if you did a series on like uh, why you shouldn't buy a house and you talked about the buying of your first house, but you also interviewed some experts, you had Ramit on, you know, you could you could do it. Sort of like a mix between, it, it's almost like uh, like Gonzo journalism kind. Of, it's like you experiencing the thing, but also talking to other people. I, I bet that would be popular. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, again, I'm 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 thinking of ways to to change the format a little bit that hasn't been done before. Sure, but uh, so so perennial seller by Ryan Holiday. This, by the way, is I've I've loved all your books. Obviously, this is it's true. I saw you wrote it in your email list, but this really is my favorite book Thank by you. you by far. Because also, it's a topic that's dear to my heart, and yeah. uh, uh, I'm always curious about these things. Like you, you probably heard my discussion with Cass Sunstein, or at least you know he covers uh, some of this in his book, but just about Star Wars. Uh, before this. Podcast. I accompanied you to go on uh, Good Day New York, yeah, and we took photos of you on the show, and even you doing makeup. The idea that process is art. Mm -hmm. So you being the process of you doing a book uh, is also important. Like, yeah, and you talk about this in Perennial Seller, like some of your anecdotes with Lance Armstrong and Iron Maiden, and so on. Process definitely plays a role in 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 this book and in your other books. Yeah, I don't think you want to make something that's self-indulgent that's all about you, but you want to bring what only you can bring to the table. And like when I market this book, I'm going to sh- like I've recorded everything I made while making this book and I'm going to show I'm going to show how it was made from, you know, from the original note card, from the book proposal to the note card that inspired the book to the 
when I read the audiobook two weeks ago and I was still marking up pages, I kept all of it and I'm going to scan it and show how it works. So, so once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. I, I really yeah. want to figure out how many times you've been on. So you came on when you fir- your first book. Uh, we've come on with each book. So each book, trust and then me, there was I, one that was not related to the books. Yeah. So, so that would be a lot. I, I think this is your sixth time on the podcast, actually. So, and then I've I've written about conversations we've had, and you've written about them too, about conversations we've had after the yep. podcast. So, when are you next coming on? What's the next thing? Um, well, I'm doing a journal for the Daily Stoic um, that you write in in the morning and at night, so that'll come out. And then my next book is we talked about it a lot, but my next book is about the war between Peter Thiel and Gawker. So I am uh, chugging away on that. But that's going to be out in a while. Well, uh, hopefully sooner because I think it's newsworthy. So I'm gonna, I'm killing myself to get it done. But. And 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 just to see that you take your own advice, what are you doing to market this book over the next couple of weeks? Well, you know what, I'm not I'm not thinking about hitting any bestseller lists. I'm not thinking about pre-orders. Really, I'm thinking about how do I get it in the hands of the people who will get it into the hands of the. So I'm doing a talk at Penguin Random House today to all the people who work at my publisher um, to talk to them about. How they like, I want them when they sign a new author to give them this book, you know. So, I want to, I want to implant myself in the creative space first and foremost, especially with authors. So, I'm going to do a lot of, I'm going to show a lot of the process. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use my list. I'm going to do some publicity. We're going to create an indestructible version of the book as a stunt. Um, Oh yeah, what yeah. do you mean? Like, uh, like we're gonna print it on fireproof paper, and then we're gonna try to light it on fire and oh, stuff great. like that. Yeah. So yeah, stunt marketing. Do it all, man. Yeah, <laughs> I I will use the book as a playbook for the marketing for the book for sure. Excellent. Yes. All right. Well, Ryan, thanks again. Thanks for having me. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. For instance, Tim at Aggrad, A-G-G-R-A-D said, this is my favorite podcast by far. Seriously, not hyperbole. James is a genius. He researches guests extensively and always seems to deliver the perfect question at the perfect time. He has a very high standard for guests Every episode makes me think. Highly recommend. Tim, that was a really great review. Thank you. I'm going to try, hopefully, to keep the same standard of questions, and and we'll see. But I really enjoy reading these. So, Tim, it means a lot to me, and I'm grateful for your support. 